0: Dan and Corey here, welcoming you in to Libservative. All right, welcome in to a bit of an unorthodox episode of Libservative today. I, of course, as always, am Dan Griffin. Corey Walsh, uh, feeling a little bit under the weather here as we were scheduled to do uh, our latest episode Uh, We will get to all those topics that we were planning on bringing you today, uh, including, obviously, updates on Ukraine, uh, some of the Reuters polls about the no-fly zone, uh, as well as uh, Americans supporting the halting the purchase of Russian oil, gas prices... Uh, The whole lot. $1.5 trillion uh, appropriations package. I have a monologue as well. But uh, without Corey, we are putting all those topics on hold. And instead, we decided to do something a little bit different. We're going to run back an interview from uh, back in July of 2021 uh, with Dr. Dylan Selterman, who is a social and personality psychologist working as an associate teaching professor at Johns Hopkins University in their Department of Psychology and Brain Sciences. Dr. Selterman's research interests include uh, attraction and interpersonal relationships, morals, ethics, and political psychology, well-being, happiness, and sexuality, and he teaches introductory psychology and statistics, and he also leads a mindfulness meditation for students. Uh, You can still find his blog uh, on psychology today, and I read all of this from his very own website. If you want to check that out, that's dylanselterman.com. Some of the things that we discussed uh, in that interview back in July was uh, moral perception and and where liberals and conservatives disconnect. And one of the main things that we talk about with Dr. Selterman uh, in the interview is about how liberals and conservatives, believe it or not, this isn't that crazy, uh, actually, a lot of the times actually want the same thing. But their moral perception of their own ideas and the other team's ideas don't allow that connection uh, to come together. Uh, we talk about acceptable diversity versus unacceptable diversity. Uh, and the, the social purity test uh, is one of the huge topics in this. Uh, grassroots activists that are actually on the ground tend to be far more uh, pragmatic in their approach to change, you know, while the political hobbyists are are very bad and tribal and loud and uh, have much less of an idea of what's actually uh, occurring in the world. Um, And uh, we talked a little bit about the social and digital civil war. Is it fake? Is it real? What does it mean? Um, Mental health and how we communicate, uh, giving our youth less structure and, and more responsibility uh, to help with their mental health as they go forward in life, um, just a really interesting conversation that Corey and I had with Dr. Selterman uh, back in July. Uh, we hope you enjoy it. we 'll definitely get back to our regularly scheduled programming uh, as soon as Corey is well. so please, without further ado, please enjoy our interview with Dr. Dylan Selterman. <music> All right, so Dr. Dylan Selterman from the University of Maryland joining us here on Libservative. Uh, Dylan, we appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, absolutely. So, Dylan, the way we came across you um, as a uh, as as it pertains to this very first season of understanding the perceived, you know, social and digital civil war that we seem to be going through on a day to day basis in America. Um, I came across your article, "The Language of Liberals." Uh, Progressive activists need a good lesson in moral perception. Uh, I was just wondering if you could kind of expound on moral perception and and essentially what progressives and liberals uh, aren't doing right as it pertains to that.
1: Yeah. Well, I think moral perception is just basically understanding the motivations that people would have across a variety of different issues and topics in society. And I think, you know, environmental policy is probably a good example of this because there's seemingly some disconnect across the political divide. But if you look at people's attitudes, liberals and conservatives are uh, both pretty, pretty much in agreement on this agreement. Agreement being things like climate change is a problem. We should do something about it. It's caused by human activities. And. This disconnect, I think, is, I mean, the the disconnect in perception, that is, is due to the fact that we don't really know or we don't understand where we're coming from. So liberals tend to be concerned more about treating other people fairly. They're concerned about justice. And so they're thinking about environmental policy in terms of protecting vulnerable populations, whereas conservatives might be more motivated to take action on climate for national security reasons. Or for religious reasons, trying to you know protect God's creation. So we're coming at this from different vantage points, but we're not speaking the same language. So liberals have a hard time, I think, understanding where conservatives might be coming from, even when there's agreement on what the issues are, or what the facts are. So I, I think that's you know a, probably a good place to start, at least with regards to moral perception. Almost like a uh, not what you say, but how you say it. Yeah, the, the different kinds of words we might use and also the different kinds of ideas we have about right and wrong. I mean, those are it's not just language. It's how we think about the world and how we think about social interactions, how we think about morals and ethics.
0: You spoke a little bit about um, the liberals' need to you know, be inclusive. And what I find interesting about that is... It kind of turns on its head because it's almost like, well, we need to include marginalized groups, but we need to exclude those that don't think the way that we do. You see that often when you know somebody might bring up a, a bit of a, a conservative opinion. It might not be even that big of a deal, but you're, you're on that team. You're excluded.
1: Yeah, it's, it, it is kind of paradoxical to say we we like diversity except from those folks or except from, you know, these points of view. Uh, I, I struggle to reconcile that when I hear lots of people in my liberal world talk about the importance of diversity, but I can't help but notice that it's, you know, there there's, there's clear boundaries on what types of diversity are acceptable and what types of diversity are not acceptable. I, and when, when I try to engage with people in conversation about you know why they're drawing the boundaries there or what the boundaries even are, it's very slippery. It's 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 very uh, kind of ad hoc and without a lot of clarity about what we're actually doing.
0: And I like that you use the word slippery. The way I like to put it is: where did the goalposts move today? The, the, the goalposts tend to to keep moving something that may have been considered uh, something that may have been considered okay yesterday now all of a sudden is pushing the edge it might get you in trouble might get you canceled and you know I don't I don't mean to be like the whole you know cancel culture as run amok kind of guy but you know you do see it where the thing that frustrates us as as progressives is I'm just I'm really really tired of seeing the left the, the snake eating its own tail when does that snake get up the tail far enough to you
2: yeah, the purity test.
1: You know, some of my colleagues, especially those in uh, behavioral and social science, yeah. have noted that among progressive activists who are doing most of the on-the-ground grassroots work, they're much more pragmatic. They're, it's it's much more about satisficing. Let's you know see where we can find common ground. Let's see where we can build bridges to connect with people who might not agree with us 100% of the time, but they'll agree with with us enough that we can actually get things done. And those are the heroes, those are the folks who have been responsible for most of the progressive changes that we've seen over the past few decades. It's really where we get into trouble, I think, is with people who are more like political hobbyists, who follow the news and root for their tribe almost like it's a team sport, but aren't really doing much on the ground. And that's where we see a lot of the purity tests coming from. It's the, the people who are not really engaging on a substantive level to create this kind of positive change. Because when, when you actually get on the ground and talk to people, you realize just how much potential there is to, to make substantive changes in, in social terms or in policy terms. And it's it's really tough to say no to that when you have it right in front of you. When you don't have it right in front of you, and all you have is, let's say, T V news or you know, you're 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 seeing the latest outrageous thing that a right wing senator said, that's really all that is in the forefront of your mind, is there's a clear enemy, we need to stop this, and that's it.
2: The two sides you talk about like a straw man, they both created these caricatures of these people that aren't even like real. You know what I mean? Like, it's like they're fighting shadows and fighting ghosts and they're not even getting to the conversation about the policies of like what's actually happening. Cause we're too busy talking about Joe Biden sniffing some girl's hair.
0: And and you actually uh, spoke to what I, what I think to be true, which is, I, I think it's mostly phony because as you said, most of what's going on out on the street, people that are actually going out there talking to people are, are, are actually having decent conversations. It's like when you walk, you, if you sit there and you look at your computer all day, right? you're, you're going to think the world's coming to an end. We're about to start shooting each other in the streets. But then you walk outside and you say hello to somebody at the park and you engage in a nice conversation that probably doesn't even bring up anything political. So we, what we see in our digital world is just not the same as what I think is really out there. And it's, that seems to be what you're speaking to.
1: Yeah, and I would add a little bit more onto that. I would say I think there there is definitely the perception that this kind of social civil war is going on, and that does have a kind of chilling effect in terms of the vast majority of people who would otherwise be inclined to get involved on a deeper level because it, what re, what research has shown is that on average people don't really like social and political conflict. And so, if you think that conflict is going to happen simply by having a conversation, even with like-minded people about important issues, now we're less likely to do that. so I, I think the the main kind of may, maybe you could call it a, a self-fulfilling prophecy if if we if we believe that there's much there's this there's, there's this much tension out there, then we're less likely to engage. And that's a problem because we need to be having those kinds of conversations about how politics and government are affecting our lives, and we should be having those those conflicts often. Or I'm sorry, we should be having those conversations often.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's actually an interesting way of thinking of it. I, I hadn't really thought about it that way. If you think about, you know, when you go to a family gathering, you know, it's Thanksgiving, you're over there, and you know, your uncle Frank brings up a, a conservative talking point. Maybe he voted for Donald Trump or and and Aunt Nancy voted for Joe Biden. And then you, you hear you see them both throw their hands up in the air and go, we're not talking politics. <laughs> that seems to be what that is a little concerning. You're absolutely right. I, I can see it that way.
2: Yeah. 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 I see what you're saying. Like at uh, when everyone talks about like, oh, you're not supposed to talk about religion or politics. And it's like, no, we probably should be having those conversations. We should be combating our own confirmed biases and we should be uh, actually trying to figure things out and talk about things. But right now we're in a world where everything is either a three minute segment on uh, national media where people are yelling at each other, or it's a 120 character tweet to where things aren't elaborated like they should be. So it's all about the quick, the quick snippet, like a, uh, like a Jordan Peterson yelling and slamming on the table, you know, or a, uh, Let me think, or a like a Sean Hannity, we bring up Sean Hannity and Rachel Maddow all the time because those are our perfect examples. Like Rachel Maddow is either telling you how to feel and what to feel sad about, Sean Hannity's over here telling you what to be angry about. And it's just these conversations are going nowhere because it's always oversimplified, like I was saying earlier, to where it's like, like Dan said, everyone just kind of throws their hands up and it's like, I don't want to talk about this.
1: Yeah, I, I think Americans in general may not be great at emotion regulation. I, I, I think, or, or emotional intelligence. And, and the thing is, I'm I'm not anti-anger. I, I think there's there's a justification to be found there. I think you know I feel angry all the time. The the trick is trying to channel that where you're not being antagonistic. Where you're communicating in a way that's actually constructive and productive, and I think this is where we just we we could have a lesson in not just you know moral psychology, but just in general psychology, just under understanding what what are you feeling right now? why are you feeling it? How can you remedy the situation you're in basic cognitive behavioral therapy stuff this, this is you know this, this stuff we're not really taught in school but i think is really essential and so if, if we had a little bit more of that maybe a lot of these other things would kind of fall into place
2: yeah yeah mental health is something that's kind of stigmatized in our country and it's funny that you mentioned that because i actually wrote that down because i listened to your uh, happiness you podcast and uh, you guys talked a lot about that and i was thinking about, like how like if mental health was actually combated in our country, then and it wasn't stigmatized, I think that would almost be like a catalyst to help cure a lot of our issues, like a blanket. And we're talking like the war on drugs, we're talking uh, like you know, gun, like gun issues, gun violence, domestic violence, uh, depression, anxiety, and like if these people and if if people were able to actually go and talk to people, we might be able to circumvent a lot of issues that we have in our country.
1: Yeah. And I think, uh, I totally agree. Destigmatizing mental illness and promoting wellness, promoting therapy. Those are all really important things. Um, I separate from mental illness though, just in terms of how we go about our everyday lives and being able to understand the emotions we're feeling and communicate with each other effectively is just something that we're, we're, we are we we do not seem to be very, very, good at. So what, what I would suggest and begin, I, Work in education, so I, I teach the psychology of happiness, and I, I try to conduct my class in a way that's conducive to people actually coming to terms with what they're feeling and, and communicating better with others. But this needs to start at a much younger age, and it needs to be something that should be built into our communities too. So if you think about you know K through twelve education, especially, the the students who who are in our schools, They don't have much autonomy. They don't have much personal responsibility. They're just told, this is what you're going to do. We're in charge. And that's that. If we put kids, if we put adolescents in a position where they actually had to communicate with each other in order to make their communities function, then I think they're going to develop those skills more organically. They're going to be able to figure out, okay, well, where is this person coming from? What are their motivations? What are their concerns? how do we maximize what you know the best outcomes are people aren't thinking around those lines because when we put people through school it's just this is the system you're going to go through it and and that's that you have no power production line yeah, yeah it's like a, it's a straight production line
0: and the it's i'd heard you and i've heard many other folks Dylan talk about the overstructured nature of our youth and when they Become adults, and that structure is all of a sudden just gone, just taken away from them. It's almost you know where do you go next? And that's where you see a lot of this pressure and a lot of you know the, a lot of the anxiety and a lot of the depression come around. As to where you 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 even put it as simple, I believe I believe it was you as as just more more free play for children as they're growing up. And you know you don't have to go to dance class and then soccer practice and then you know come home do homework get up and go to school and do it all again the next day. You know, sometimes it's okay to just go out and use your imagination. I think that's how a lot of us grew up as as older millennials. And, you know, not that we don't have our issues, but, you know, everything seems to be okay.
1: Yeah, I I want to plug the work of uh, Peter Gray. He's an evolutionary psychologist. He has a wonderful book called Free to Learn and a blog on psychology today of the same name. And he's written a lot about the benefits of free play in terms of learning and pedagogy and also in terms of mental health. What I'd like to do is specifically draw the link between free play and having a healthier democracy, because I think that when, when especially when we're young, when we're forced into situations where we have to cooperate in order to make our communities function, then we, we learn by doing. We actually get practice. And other educational theorists like Daniel Greenberg, for example, have promoted the idea that schools ought to be laboratories for, or, or practice spaces for democracy. And that, I think, is a really crucial element that's missing from our culture.
2: Yeah, I remember, like, yeah, like, we were supposed to be a democracy, but growing up, you're told, to do what I say. So, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense.
0: Going back to your article, just how we're framing... Our arguments. That was a that was a big piece. That was a big piece of the article, and uh, even tying into to childhood and free play. And this is the way it is. It seems like maybe some of these youth are taking that mentality into their adult lives. And you know, it's this way or it's no way, and there is no middle ground. A, a great example is you know what happens when you when you call somebody a racist, right? Even if they are a racist, they've got two options. They're backed into a corner. They're either going to have to admit that they're a racist. Or they're going to have to be that guy that goes, I'm not a racist. I have black friends. Either way, you already sound like an asshole. So there's nowhere to go from there.
1: Yeah, um, it's 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 unfortunate. I'm really inspired by the work of people who actually try to get in with these, you know, Really fringe right wing groups like neo Nazis, like the documentary filmmaker Diacon, for example, um, really inspiring uh, work there. Daryl Davis. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and and they're they're talking to the the worst of the worst by by most people's standards, and actually changing their minds because they're treating them like humans. They're treating them with compassion, and. Uh, Most liberals seem to be, or at least I wouldn't say most, I would say, you know, the, the, the majority of people on the, on the extreme left are unwilling and maybe incapable of doing that kind of work. And I guess what I wish I could, you know, get the message through to them is this is, this is strategic. If we want to eradicate racism, it helps to not be so aggressive in the things that you're, That you're saying to people it helps to be more compassionate
2: right it's um it's more like uh i mean it's like you personally can be as woke and as pure as you want but if you're not bringing a couple of people with you you're really not doing that much for the community you're at this point where you're trying to be this so inclusive progressive person that you're not as open-minded as you think because anyone else who isn't as open-minded as you is immediately shunned and like brushed off and almost like to the point where it can be an extreme to where like Dan was saying where they're just called a racist and they're kicked to the curb. And then those people just aren't even involved in the camp and it makes them feel disenfranchised and they don't want to help the movement. And it just, it creates this vicious cycle
1: of just stagnancy. Yeah. It, it ends the conversation there. Once, once you have decided the other person is a bigot and they're irredeemable, there's, there's no, there's nowhere to go from there. Certainly nowhere positive. Right. Which in reality, a
2: lot of times those type of people, like, like, let's be honest, you might not, you might have different views on abortion, but if your car is on fire, they're probably still going to jump in and try to help you. Like they're still decent human beings. They're just, you guys don't have the same views. And I think that, like I was saying earlier with the caricature thing, I, I think I kind of found where I was going with that. It's where these people aren't, they're not what the media is putting them. These people are still real people. You know, like you, like what I try to do is I think of the word sonder. Where every person has the same type of emotions, thoughts, interactions, and date, and second to second, like uh, thought processes that everyone else in the entire world has.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Instead of pushing somebody off into a corner and leaving them there to rot, um, and and get kicked down by the uh, the blue checkmark brigade, as I like to call them on Twitter. Uh, Positive psychology and and how we can begin to change these conversations because one of the things I'd like to do with this season is at least be a small part in trying to you know correct the course of discourse uh, that we're seeing,
1: yeah, and positive psychology can be great for a lot of things. I would like to see more a bridge between the positive psychology framework and political psychology, so not just working on eradicating misinformation, but actually promoting healthy communication in that space. Um, This is, I mean, I think positive psychology mostly is focused on things like wellness, happiness, flourishing, that kind of thing. Uh, but there's a lot of room for that to kind of spill over into, into politics like we're talking about.
2: Okay. To the to where you would like, you know, you try to get the community involved and get excited about trying to pass a new ordinance to make it to where you have a bike lane, not just being mad about the other team doing things. So like more yeah, okay.
0: What are some examples that, that uh, if you can think of any example that would apply to basically anything we just talked about as far as using positive psychology and and bridging it with political psychology.
1: Well, I think if you there, there's there's research on social and behavioral synchrony that when you get people on the same wavelength then there's there's warm feelings, there's cooperation, things like that. So perhaps we could have just more instances of people doing that kind of thing with other community members, with others uh, across the country where, you know, we have that that experience, that shared joy, and maybe that, you know, spills over into other aspects where we might otherwise not be able to have productive conversations, but maybe it becomes easier to do that. So I, I would like to see, and generally that research has shown that people have this kind of collective effervescence with people in their own political tribes. So can we do that with people in other political tribes? And would that have ultimately some benefit in terms of the the health of the discourse and the health of our democracy? So I'd like to see more research on that.
0: As it pertains to, um, you know, reframing the way that we uh, give our arguments and then also as it relates to uh, bridging uh, positive psychology and political psychology it, it almost seems like just reframing a couple of words in the way that we say things you talk a lot about um, how the wokest uh faction of the progressives they, they tend to put everything in terms of as some sort of justice whether it's you know climate justice or social justice and we've gotten to a point now where where folks on the right look at that word justice and they think To me, at least, this is just my opinion, it seems like they're thinking like, oh, you're accusing me of something. You're accusing me of not uh, approving of this justice and this righteousness.
1: Yeah. So just to add on to that, I think um, it's it's not only I mean, the word justice, I agree, has become a loaded term. And for me personally, and I think, you know, this is probably true for most people on the left. It's a very positive thing. We, we, We don't want to to change that. We we want it to remain a positive thing. If we if we fail at that, then we lose one of the one of the best rhetorical tools that we have. But I think the idea that justice as a framework would be less appealing to conservatives, say for example, is only half the the picture because it's actually also true that the justice framing is less popular amongst most moderates and liberals on certain issues. So this is one of the things that comes up in the issue of um, changing single-family zoning housing policy. It's more popular amongst liberals if you use the economic engine framing, if you frame it in terms of job creation and things like that relative to the justice framing. So even amongst liberals, we kind of struggle to understand ourselves. And this is consistent with some of the other research I cited in the article by Jesse Graham and Brian Nosek and John Haidt, showing that the biggest moral misunderstandings came from the left, even about themselves, in addition to about conservatives. So this is why I'm saying, you know, I think liberals have a lot of learning to do. And
0: it's not and it's not an attack on liberals. Uh, All of us, all of us here, I think, are, are. Mostly to the left. Uh, Corey, I know Corey is, I know I am, I, I know you are Dylan and I, I've always, I frame it kind of the way, um, that, that Brett Weinstein likes to frame it. The left is my political home. So it's a lot easier for me to, it makes a lot more sense for, for me to notice what I guess if for lack of a better term, my team is, is doing wrong than it. And it, I feel like it's more productive to call that out as opposed to, you know, just, Going out and, and making fun of conservatives all day because I don't know what it's like to be one of those.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, I I'm I'm definitely left of center. I agree with libertarians on a lot of things. I agree with conservatives, um conservatives on some things, but I, I'm mostly liberal. And I agree it's easier to see the 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 team and the, the the tribe that you're embedded in and all the things that could be better about what we're doing. But it's also, I think, you know, it, I've said this in the article, it's, it's, it's a bit frustrating because these are, these are my values. I want these ideas, the, you know, progressive ideals. I want them to succeed.
2: I like, I like how you uh, mentioned like the libertarian thing too, because that's kind of like where I'm at too. When it, when like, when I look at liberals almost, it's like, Like we're talking, like it's our home base. Like we, I like the progressivism. Conservatism to me doesn't really make sense personally because it's always like moving a goalpost. Cause it's like, what do you want to be? You want to be a conservative in 1990? You want to be a conservative in 1950? Like what, like what, what's conservatism? So like progressivism just seems more like pragmatic to me to where it's actually like we're working on things. We're getting things worked out. And, uh, one thing that I don't like like when it comes to uh, like liberalism, like we, what we've been talking about is the purity thing that pushes me more towards libertarianism is it, it seems like the liberal response to any social issue is more government. We just got to get the government in there. The government's got to mandate and do things to where libertarians go. The government shouldn't be involved in this in the first place. And so I think that like the, if you like when we talk about reframing the conversation, from from my standpoint it's uh it's kind of like t- trying to like frame it to where like yeah I'm a, I'm a progressive like i i consider myself more libertarian but we need to uh like let me think how i want to word this i could i come from a libertarianistic like a libertarian viewpoint to people when i talk about more progressive objects when i talk to conservatives i guess is what i'm saying
0: left libertarian it, it's a new thing
2: Yeah, like, yeah, I, you know, it's, you know, it sounds almost oxymoronic. I consider myself a social libertarian to where, uh, like, I think the government shouldn't be involved in damn near anything that is in our personal lives, but we're not fools. We got to pay for roads. We're not going to be Honduras in a libertarian paradise, a libertarian utopia where we got to pay people with machine guns to stand in front of our convenience store. So I know that we need government funding for issues like that. But so rounding back up to what I was saying before, when I talk about uh, like social progressivism that like liberals and libertarians are on the page a lot with a lot of things. And if you're talking to a conservative, if you frame it from a libertarian viewpoint, conservatives really seem to really kick in and like it a lot more than from a liberal viewpoint.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm approaching this from a pragmatic standpoint. If, if we have a framework for our rhetoric or policies that's going to be more broadly appealing to achieve a liberal goal, then that's what we should do. We should not be dogmatic in our thinking and insist on a very specific and narrow way of framing or talking about the issue just because it's what we want.
2: Or just because that's what our social bubble is saying.
0: In the silo. Yeah. And that's actually uh, what I wanted to finish up with your, with you, Dylan, Corey, I don't know if you had a whole lot after this. I just wanted to talk about pretty much everything we've just discussed and talk about how that has to do with, you know, identity. You know, we seem to be this, this entire perceived social civil war and uh, uh, um, digital civil war seems to be one of the main roots of the problem seems to be that. We take our views, we take our political ideologies, and we we ingrain them so far into our identity that I think that's what makes it – one of the things that makes it so hard to have these conversations sometimes. Because when somebody disagrees with you or they have a differing opinion, it's almost like they're attacking who you are as a person, and that's some of what we need to get away from, I feel.
1: Uh, I I think that might be the most challenging part of this to, to fix. And there's, there's some good work by um, a political psychologist, Liliana Mason, who's actually a colleague of mine at the university of Maryland. She has a, uh, a lot of work on what she calls like mega identities. So there's this fusion of political identities with other types of social identities and that is in part what's been responsible for a lot of our feelings of polarization. So you're absolutely right. If you uh want to engage with somebody on a policy idea for them, it might be like you're criticizing their their personhood. And that's, you know, really not a very good way to think about politics, but I don't really see a good way out of that. I think you know what what conservatives might argue in a case like this and maybe there's something to this. Is that we should think more about national identity as something that could be uniting. That you know we're all citizens, we're all in this together, we're all trying to um, you know solve problems together and create a a, a wonderful society together.
2: That's why infrastructure bills are typically <laughs> popular. Yeah,
1: and it, and yeah. it's something that we've seen before. I mean, not, not even
0: that long ago, just in our lifetime. I mean, we 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 were all here for the attack on nine eleven, right? It was it was a horrible. T- it was a you know it was a horrible tragedy. Um, but let's not pretend like that, at least for a brief period of time, you know, didn't bring us together. That that source of that of national identity. Go back a little well, further, go back to world war. Two. We had a lot of that going. Well, it's true.
2: We got the America got really angry at anyone that was Muslim for a while there. Like they didn't like them. So but most Americans of us were unified. united. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, but yeah, you, you get what you get. What I'm saying is like, it yeah, almost I, know saying. Take, I know I'm like, just teasing. i mean, not really, it's that. not
2: something to downplay, but
0: <laughs> it almost seems to take on that. It's, it's almost like, I don't want to say that we need like a national tragedy or something. I would hope that we could avoid something like that. Um, but that's like the, the closest thing to an example of, of what you just said, Dylan, that the conservative argument might be. I think that's the closest example I could think of.
1: Right. And, and Corey, to your point, I think that would be that would be the liberal argument against that is yeah. we're not it's all almost nitpicking. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're not, you know, on equal footing. So how can we have an actual national identity if there's so much inequality? Um, so that, that's, that's really, I think one of the, one of the big things that's preventing all of us from kind of getting on that same page is, okay, we want to have the national identity. That sounds good, but at the same time, we know all there's all this inequality does exist. So we need to deal with that. That's, that's, you know, high on our priority list. Yeah. Um, So national identity, I'm sorry to cut you off. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think, you know, a, a big political compromise, if we're going to achieve that would be for each side to acknowledge the benefit of each other's way of thinking. So conservatives acknowledging to liberals, yes, you're right, there is this huge inequality and there's you know racism that undercuts the national identity. And then liberals would have to respond by saying, yes, and we also agree that the national identity is probably something that we could strive for. Um, and, and that would be useful to us in kind of you know, thinking about ways to craft a good society. Right. And then
2: acknowledge that my national identity might not be exactly the same as your national identity to where we both have different struggles. We both uh, view, everybody views America differently based on how they've grown up here. So like to understand that everyone's national identity of what they think might be a little bit different, but then I guess that goes back into being emotionally attached to our opinions like we were talking about earlier. And so I guess maybe the way to, uh, like I was thinking when you were talking about, or when we we're talking about uh like mental health and being in control of our emotions and understanding our emotions, that 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 almost like a, a route like that might also help alleviate the issue of people actually being emotionally attached to opinions. Cause I forget who says it, but and I mentioned this in the pilot episode too. But he goes, like, my opinions change as the fact changes." Pray tell, what do you do, sir? And it's like, if everyone was able to objectively view everything, I guess objectively, then we might actually be better off and actually see like a pragmatic view approach towards more things in our society.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting that you're um, framing it in terms of like viewing facts and objectively true information as a, as a guide. I think this is where I probably have a different view than most people, especially, especially with regards to concerns about misinformation Um, because I think that when we get smarter when we get more educated, we get better at weaponizing true information for a biased mm-hmm. end point. Like I saw, um, I believe it was Tom Cotton tweeted uh, after the big um, COVID relief bill that there was stimulus money going to uh, criminals who had been convicted of murder. Now that's, that's true, but it's also true that the same thing happened under Trump's relief bill, which... Cotton himself had also voted for. Mm-hmm. So the, the the notion is that the, the 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 way in which we use information, I think, can be even more damaging than the way in which misinformation uh, is is often used.
2: You're right. No, you are. You are. You're right. You're right. 100. percent I think about the uh, the argument that people do with numbers when it comes to like uh, police injustice and police brutality with like the black community. And then they they immediately jump to go, oh, well, look at this. It's like 256 white people were killed and there's only 120 black people. Why are you mad? And it's like, well, there's like 13% of the of the population of black people. So the ratios are way off. And then they go, oh, well, 90% of black people are killed by black people. So they're more violent. And it's like, well, 80% of white people are killed by white people. It's almost like it's the community you live in. It doesn't matter the color. And so I get, I understand what you're saying when like numbers can be manipulated so easily where it's inherently true, but it's being twisted into a, a bias factor.
0: Well, Dylan, I, uh, I was hoping that you could, you know, solve all of our problems, but it appears we're going to have to keep doing this podcast. <laughs> uh,
2: I, had, I, I had one more thing, actually. It was just something that was kind of an offshoot. You were talking about, uh, like, uh, in that pot one podcast with you on Happiness You you are talking about uh, dopamine and social media and uh, unhappiness. And how dopamine, like, it's it's almost like a scapegoat, like, oh, social media uses dopamine. And then you were explaining, yeah, well, so does eating cookies, and so does riding your bike. Things that make you happy make you happy. And so, and then when we were talking about the unhappiness, I was thinking about how, like, the algorithms that entice interaction for good or bad. And if those algorithms are based on our own interaction, then couldn't that mean they were already unhappy and the algorithms are just exposing it? You
1: and don't that- know that social media algor- Yeah,
2: like social media algorithms and that could ultimately lead to a good thing and maybe that this generation is just caught in the cog of progress and that it's and what i mean by a good thing is that it's it's pushing in everyone's faces that mental health is an issue in our country and it's not something that just a couple of people have like mental health issues isn't just standing on the corner fist fighting the air it's combating that fight or flight instinctual thing when you're sitting at your desk and you're just shaking because there is no real enemy and you don't know what to do, and you're just having this anxiety attack.
1: Yeah, 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 I'm glad you brought that up. I, I think um, I, I I like talking about, you know, cor- correcting the record and, and, you know, fixing myths and misinformation about the human mind. This is, like, what I do all all day in my, in my job. So dopamine itself mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. misunderstood commonly to be this, like, kind of opioid type of, a neurotransmitter where it just, you know, it, it gives you, pleasurable feelings, but that's actually not what it's about. It's more about motivation and the direction of our energies. So when we think about dopamine in this context, it is involved in virtually anything that is fun. So you have, you know, the the dopaminic system is activated when you're looking at a tasty piece of food that you want to go eat. And if you want to go ride your bike, And if you want to play Mm -hmm. board games Mm -hmm. with your friends and yes, on social media and video games and and other digital technologies, but just because there's some kind of, uh, you know, mesolimbic system activation, that doesn't really tell us very much. And this is, I think one of the big misunderstandings about social media is really a misunderstanding about psychology. There, there is nothing unique necessarily about social media in terms of how it makes us feel relative to other things. And I think social media does get scapegoated as a force that has done a lot of damage to our ourselves in terms of mental health and in terms of political instability. But I think that you're onto something in the sense that it's really just bringing to light things that were already there. It's bringing to the forefront of our consciousness all the ways in which we might have been feeling okay. miserable. For a very long time and the polarization that has been there for a very long time since before the internet since before um, smartphones were invented it was just smaller circles yeah and and we're just not we're not seeing it as much so now we're seeing it but it was always there and with with regards to something like you know political polarization we're just you know you if, if you wanted to avoid going to see someone at a party so you call ahead and say is this person going to be there oh okay well then i won't go but now if you're on your phone then you're seeing them no matter what like you're you're son of
2: a bitch (laughs)
1: looking at your phone just this
2: son of a bitch (laughs) so so that
1: you know that those folks were always there and the emotions that we had were always there and the political dysfunction has, has always been there
2: yeah 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 no i like what you're saying it's um like, because when you really think about it, in the grand like, I think humans like to look at the world in just little like snippets of like a hundred years, because that's basically how long we got. Whether like gets like hearing from previous living ancestors to people that are passing on, you got about a hundred years of life history you live with. And so, you mean to tell me that people like in the sixteen hundreds weren't were happier? They weren't any less depressed or more depressed than we are now. It's just we're seeing it more. In the nineteen twenties, when people were living in their they're in the Dust Bowl. And they're in their house and they have to pack towels under the door. So the dust ain't coming in. I'm sure they weren't much happier mentally than people are now.
1: You know, um, along those lines, uh, my colleague Eli Finkel has a wonderful book called the all or nothing marriage. And he he's a, a social psychologist who studies intimate relationships. And what he's basically noted is that over, over the past, you know, uh, about half a century, we're in basically a new era of thinking about marriage, where you kind of see this dissociation. So, on average, people's marriages are less happy than they once were, but the best marriages are even happier than they would have been like a hundred years ago. And what what he's noting is that we're we're coming up with new ways to think about happiness, new ways to define happiness in terms of fulfillment, in terms of self-actualization. And people just weren't really talking about those things in their day-to-day lives one or 200 years ago. Right, so they're, they're more worried more, about like finding food. Exactly. <laughs> so they're, they're more focused on survival. So now that we're less focused on survival, we're thinking for other avenues in which we might feel self-actualization. So there's a lot more potential, but there's a lot more room for failure too. And so it can feel more miserable if you're not taking full advantage of all that life has to offer. But that's not how our you know, that that's not how we've generally done things for most of modern history, anyway. To to
0: piggyback on that real quick, Dylan, do you do you think that that uh, because obviously the human brain hasn't you know evolved a whole lot since we you know discovered fire? I'm sure it has a little bit, but um, do you think that that sort of that survival instinct is still kind of playing into these these things that you're talking about that maybe don't have to do with survival, but, you know, subconsciously we feel that way, which is where the miserable feelings come from.
1: Yeah. There's some pretty good work by, I'm going to reference another colleague of mine at Maryland, Michelle Gelfand. She has a nice book, rule makers, rule breakers. It's basically about her theory of tightness and looseness across cultures. And she has some good evidence that tight cultures emerge from uh, long histories of external threats, so if you look at the tightest of the United States, tight in this case means uh, w- with regards to social and legal norms, like how much restriction there is on behavior. So places like Alabama and Mississippi have some of the tighter states, mm-hmm. the, the, the harshest punishments for breaking the law. And they also have some of the highest rates of deaths by infectious disease and natural disasters. So the, the logic is that this kind of survival mindset does play a role to some extent in, even in contemporary terms, even when a lot of those things have been uh, solved to some extent by modern technology and science, but we're still thinking in terms of uh, that, that kind of survival mode. Does that make sense?
0: It does. And it, it almost sounds like it, it could apply to the way we, you know, speak to each other about politics. It's not necessarily life or death, but um, sometimes maybe subconsciously it feels that way. Um, well, Dylan, I, I think we'll let you go here. We've had you on for a while. We really appreciate it. Um, we're definitely going to put you in the Rolodex. I'm sure there'll be a season down the road where your insight would be, uh, would be much appreciated. And, uh, you know, good luck to you. And we'll, we'll definitely be in touch with you. Thank you,
1: thanks for having me.